Goodbye. Hi everyone. Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. My name is Jay King. Um, no, my name is Jay King. It's January 30th. 1975. You guys are doing a terrible job. It's like not, <laughs> it's not funny. So that's that's uh, the actual Jay King criticizing his podcast co-hosts. As usual. You can't you uh, can't do my job. Do you think you can intro the show? <laughs> <laughs> so today is our podcast book club special episode where we talk to Jay. Tammy and I are going to interrogate Jay about his book, The Loneliest Americans, which came out last week. We're glad he made the time for us. <laughs> busy schedule. This is the only press that I get paid for. So, of course I do it. Everything else is free. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So, I don't know, I mean, Jay, like, so this book, just to give readers a sense of, you know, I don't want you to necessarily summarize your own book. The way I was reading this book was, um, you know, if, if for those who read the press or you know saw some like debates about the book online you might open this book and think well this is going to be a manifesto uh-huh. right or this is going to be a sort of sociological survey of asian america um and my impression reading it was actually it wasn't that at all right it was uh i think you are i take this as this is kind of mostly a at the foundation this is a memoir um where you kind of mine your personal life you probe your personal life your personal history, and then you gesture towards these larger arguments in a very self-reflexive way, uh, which I found, you know, pretty interesting and compelling throughout. Um, and so, you know, a lot, a lot of topics you touch upon are interwoven with your own personal life. You talk about your family history. You connect that to the kind of the one of the crux uh, cruxes of the book is an argument about the Hart Cellar, 1965 Immigration Act. Um, and you kind of like talk about the different history of different um, ethnic enclaves in Asian America, like K-Town, like Flushing, your experience in Minneapolis, etc. Um, and I, so I, I guess like, I mean, how do you how do you react to that the, to this idea that your book is a memoir? Do you feel like you set out to write a memoir? Or you said, did you set out to write a book about Asian America? How did you kind of wind up trying to think about blending these two together? Uh, I don't really. I don't know. You don't sit down and think about the type of book you're going to write, you know, very much. So I got, I was realized that I wanted to write a book about six years ago or five years ago, I would say. And I started talking to people about the process of how that was going to happen. And the reason I wanted to write a book was because I I had been writing about Asian stuff so long. And I was like, well, I don't know, like, you know, like I got to, put it all in one place with new with new material that tries to make a argument that I can't always make in magazine stories, right? Because magazine stories are for like a very broad public. So you're basically writing for the quote New York Times reader. And you mm-hmm. can just imagine what that is, right? But uh, I always, who did, Tammy, did they ever tell you that? Well- well, I was just <laughs> laughing because in your book, I think there's a parental at one point that's like lawyers on planes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. my audience. Yeah, my, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, basically that's, that's like what we're talking it. about I here. Picture, like, yeah. some like law partner flying <laughs> or taking the Acela, you know, from like New York to DC to <laughs> exactly. go to do some like work meeting. And he's or, like, like other journalists bored. like pulling out the newspaper. Right, right. No, I don't actually like, ever think their, about other journalists <laughs> at their just, table drinking <clears> coffee, expensive coffee. But yeah, like I always just picture a lawyer on a on like a train or a plane just basically <laughs> be like, hey, uh, what can I read that's interesting that I didn't know about? And that's basically <laughs> how I picture it, like the readership of the stuff that I was doing before. But then I just thought, well, maybe this is a chance for me to write the things that I would actually like to write about, which is about, you know, how politics, but also just about how like, uh, you know, there's a personal stake in this for for everybody. And how do you make like a, you know, how do you try and make moral judgments in the face of all the stuff that we have to go through? And that's where like the personal stuff comes in. But, you know, also, I think, you know, like there's a also large part of it that is just like, well, what is the thing that was keeping me going while I was writing? Right. Like, I remember I read this or I remember like I had this very, when I was in graduate school, 
something happened to one of my professors and his friend had to fill in. His friend was like Philip Roth. And so I ended up taking like two classes from Philip Roth. Wait, really? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was horrible for the original professor. Like, you know, he had suffered some sort of tragedy, but, you know, it was very interesting oh to have God. Philip Roth as your teacher for a couple of weeks. But like he talked about his writing process a lot. And, you know, he was basically just saying that he would write one thing and then he'd write another thing. And then he would think that they were unrelated and then he would basically just staple them together, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he like, that's a book, you know, or maybe that it would be sense. six things, <laughs> you know, and it was really just a thing about, I don't know, DeLillo talks about this too, but it's about like, if you can write so that there is a certain propulsion to your writing where you can feel it, um, and then that's when you're going to produce your best writing. And I've always thought about that pretty, I've always tried to use that method um, you know, you can, you can disagree that the results are as good as those two, but, you know, I think I'm pretty good, but, you know, <laughs> but like, uh, I mean, I agree with Ad- I agree with Andy's <clears throat> assessment too. I guess we talked about this briefly last week, but that it does feel like a memoir and, right. um, but my, I think that's nice, I think my, you know, but your, your magazine writing is personal also, right. so well, that's, it's not that's, that different from it. That was, thank you, Tammy, for cutting me off and, and getting me right to the point. <laughs> Which is good, you know, for those. um, Yes, you're right. That is the idea. My magazine writing is also like that, right? Yeah. And um, there's no real difference that I see between the what I do. uh, Yeah. Um, So, I mean, there's a a lot of like personal stories, but I would say you do have an argument also. Right. Right. In the book. Um, As far as I could tell. So I think there's an argument running throughout the book about Asian America, but I also think in terms of like, how do we talk about it? How do we talk about race? And I think that emerges later in the book, but you're the closest thing to like a thesis statement, I think is around page 14 um, of the book. And uh, is this too academic? Well, we tried to, I was going to say, we tried, I tried to get Jay to read a section of the book and he was like, no uh, way, this is a Q and a, so we're going (laughs) to, So should we Jay, are ourselves are gonna, no, no, he doesn't want to. So we'll read the sections we're interested. Okay. I feel like I mean, you know, good. Conver- I think a good conversation will be like if you actually read a line as opposed to just talk around it. Sure, sure. Um, so I mean, the if I were to like say this is the thesis of the book or the sort of setup on page fourteen, you say this book is about that desperate need to find oneself within the narrative of a country that would rather write you out of it. Right. When I say Asians are the loneliest Americans, I'm not conjuring up a vision of an ancient, weather-beaten man playing a one-string violin by the window of a Chinatown tenement. I have no idea if that man is lonely or not. Rather, <laughs> I am talking about the loneliness that comes from attempts to assimilate, whether by melting into the white middle class or by creating an elaborate, yet ultimately derivative, racial identity. Um, and you talk more about how you kind of have skepticism yeah. about identity um, whether you feel like its identity is basically created, Asian identity, for instance, but probably many identities, is created for the audience of the majority, so white, or the audience of the sort of minority, the most prominent minority, right, which would be black. And I think another argument throughout the book is this, like, this idea, oh, you're almost kind of tongue in, I assume you're tongue in cheek about this, saying like America is still basically a biracial country. Um, and Well, the way America thinks Asians about race is still... Polarized right, right, right. Yeah, I think right. it was more of right. right descriptive. Right. Um, and then, so at the at the end of the chapter, I think you also say clearly that the pages that follow are not an attempt to answer such existential questions, but an attempt to explain why we feel the need to even ask them. So, so, so I think of this book as a sort of self reflection, a self reflective exercise in coming up with questions, and like as you say, the the need to even ask these questions, but you're not. Uh, I think, trying to come up with an exhaustive list of answers. So maybe what you're doing is perhaps just changing the direction of conversation about race and Asian American identity. Is that a fair characterization? I guess, but, you know, sometimes I get a bit frustrated just because, you know, not with you, but with some of the way that it's been processed because there's so much of a desperation to try and figure out what the solution is, you know? And it's just, or like what an actual prescription would be. I'm not writing like the six, you know, I'm not writing One Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias about like, you know, like we should have one billion Americans and here are all the reasons why. No shade on what Matt wrote. Like, you know, like it's literal, but that's literally an argument that the title, the argument is the title of the book. And 
the book is a defense of that argument, right? Now you can argue right. that like what I am saying with the title of this book is also an argument. And I would say that that's probably true, right? But I don't know, but like, I don't have a, I don't have like a solution to this process. Right. And the reason why I don't have a solution to this process is because like the process of assimilation for upwardly mobile Asian Americans, right? It seems like it's actually unstoppable, right? Because that is just capitalism, baby. You know, <laughs> like, like, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to tell all these people don't go work at a hedge fund, you know, like uh, stay in the struggle with like nobody's going to listen to you. Right. Um, right. And uh, and nor really should they. You know, it's hard to blame people for trying to like have some economic security for themselves in such precarious times. Now, at the same time, um, you know, like, will that distance us from any sort of shared sense of community? Like, does that community matter? You know, like it like will that make. Asian American identity different? Of course it will. Does Asian identity matter if it changes? I don't know, you know? And so like, those are the, like, those are, I am not like a vanguard or like a, I don't feel like I'm like a, a person who has to safeguard what Asian American identity means. I think I just have to right. question it in the ways that um, I think are, that are important to question. And I think that my prescription for it does exist, you know? And Morella uh, got into it a bit in her review in The New Yorker, right, where she was just like, um, well, he says that we just have to show up, you know, and she was like, and she said, well, show up to what, you know, and I think that that I should have written much more clearly, we should show up to protests, you know, and like that's been the that's been or like we should show up to mutual aid meetings, right, we should show up to picket lines, right, like that's 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 sort of been the theme of the show and it's something that was in the book quite a bit right like if you just try and think like well we don't have any sort of solidarity we don't have any community you know other groups don't care about us as much all these are true right like this is all true but uh how do you fix that it's like well we're not going to fix it through thinking our way through it or by denouncing privilege or like declaring ourselves white adjacent when we're not you know like we're going to fix it by showing up to things and making actual connections and to actually put in uh, type of, um, I don't know, to just meet people in the place where they are, right? I don't think we can think right. our way through this thing. And so that, 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 is, that is like the loan prescription in the book, right? It is like we, we right. need to show up to these things that, 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 that matter. I was working on something and I quoted some Asian American literary theorist who was talking about this, how we have these sort of collections of trauma right. that we, you know, mobilize for our identity. And I showed it to a friend and my friend said, oh, but but every racial group does that to some extent in the in the same way that I mean, you write in your book that African-Americans like black Americans here, um, many of them are, in fact, the descendant direct descendants of people who are enslaved. And so there is a lineage that we don't have necessarily. But, you know, we could potentially problematize that by talking about like Latino immigrants and even like Latino, right, is like a contested category. Oh. Or I think we can problematize black. Afro-pessimism too, you know? Like, yeah, but I was going to say like black right. immigrants, That's who, right? Like we had Anakwa Duamena on our show and like his mom being right. from Ghana right. and not having lived here probably doesn't necessarily think that much about slavery and doesn't necessarily right. know that much about Afro-American history. So just a question for you, like, do you think you're articulating an argument that points to the incoherence of any of these sort yes, of groupings? Yes, yes, yes. That's, okay. that's why I wanted yeah. other people to review and engage with the book you know? I, I thought you like, wanted to erase Asian critics though yeah oh yeah Ellen <laughs> just plants that was the wildest of all like the crazy yeah. that one I was just like yeah, you yeah. gotta be that was kidding like a bit of a right. yeah I'm and then I'm like harming Asian critics by saying please have one person um who isn't Asian yeah. review the book that was the worst misreading right. and that was like, bizarre and now, wait but so say more about why you think it does apply to those groups well because every identity is contested right and i don't think that the process of only using trauma through history to like create an identity or use it mainly using trauma and um and stories of like sort of overcoming to construct an identity that that connects people who you know might be uh you know have a certain class position like a privileged class position to be able to buy into that type of identity, to buy in that type of trauma. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't live through it. That doesn't mean that they don't have traumatic moments in their lives. It doesn't mean that that history isn't important sure. to them. But I do think it is a little bit different when it comes to like Black Americans and Asian Americans. I don't think they're all the same. 
you know, I do think they're a gradation. Yeah. But I think that there are examples of this in almost every single category yeah. that are different. Especially immigrant because right, of the right, way. Right, right, right. Because it matters whether you grew up here or right, not. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, so, but I don't know, like, um, I would just say that, like, I think that it's fine to use these stories as inspiration, you know? I'm inspired by the Third World Liberation Front. I think yeah. it's fucking awesome. You know, it's cool that they did that. <laughs> you know, I was reading about the an international hotel, you. which obviously went to shit after a while. You know, and they also, <laughs> but like at the beginning, like what an amazing thing to do. It's what everybody should do. Yeah. You find a group of people who need help. You're privileged college students in a sort of way, and then you go occupy that building. You fight for it for six years. You like start building coalitions with one another. Then you start yeah. fighting with one another. Obviously, that's going to happen. But you've done it, you know, like you've gone in that space. Mm-hmm. Like those are inspirational stories. They should be they should be told. But like we need to just be honest that like, you know, like we're not them. You know? <laughs> so we might as well be, you know, it's almost like we're talking about a different group of people. And so that's where I don't quite get it, right? Like it's just like why yeah. can't if we're gonna draw if we have no actual real connection to this to this group, right? Except for the people who did live through it who have ancestors or whatever who did go through it of which there are some people including people who listen to the show but um that's one thing but man like you know like why not have a more capacious understanding of things you know why not draw inspiration from other things too right like why do we feel so neurotic and so scared to draw inspiration from other struggles right that's what that's what that's all the third world liberation front was right right they just took like the afro-american study students association at cal and they they they, they took their constitution and crossed out every time it said black or Afro-American and they put third world in and that was, that's how they did it. Right. Like that literally that's, that's their constitution. And why is that? Well, it was because in part it was deference, right. But in part it was also to show like a sense of, of inspiration. And maybe some people would say that it was like basically cultural theft, which I actually think is, you know, like uh, maybe a bit overdetermined of an argument, but also I think like you know it's maybe valid. Yeah, yeah. It might be That's a little funny. valid. You know? Cultural theft. I don't know. It was just That's like, funny. well, did you have to just cross out the uh, name? Make it so obvious. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, be a little more clever. Yeah, yeah can you just yeah. like can you just like not make it He's so that out. it's clear yeah. that you're crossing out the act? like that that part is it is it's like literal oh, er- it's like literal yeah. erasure. You know, like they have actually yeah. like erased the actual word. <laughs> Right. So, like, um, (laughs) I don't know. All that, like, all that I say, I just feel like, um, I don't know. I think that that we need to come up with like a different conception. I don't know. I really thought that the, I thought that the maybe it's self-serving, but I really did think that the review in the New Yorker understood the the book the best. You know, Um, and it understood that what is argued is like a change in narrative, right? Like I'm not like a full class reductionist. Like, I don't think that like we need to like get rid of all these categories. I don't think that that's reasonable. And I think that actually is alienating to to everybody. Right. Um, But like, you know, can we tell a different story is the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say as, you know, the historian that what you're, what you all are talking about in terms of, Historian in quotation marks. Uh, when you talk about like historian. history, yeah, you yeah. actually yeah, that's literally. Your actual um, job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think you're making a totally valid criticism of history that's not history but mythology, right. and that is flat, right? That equates 21st century people with 19th century people. And I think your book is, you know, I don't know if you want to give yourself credit for this because you don't, you seem to like disdain a, a sort of uh, reliance upon history, but you're making a smart historical argument. Because I think good history is about historical specificity right. and about drawing nuances between different periods. And you've you've drawn um, a, a sharp difference between the pre-65 and the post-65 era. And the other thing that I think is, so I think you're playing with time in a really interesting way. Because we tend to think about race as like a spatial visual relationship, right? But you're actually kind of delve in identity in that sense. But I think a running thread throughout the book, and you kind of touch upon this at the end of the book, is a lot of your stuff, the stuff you've been thinking about and the sense of loneliness kind of comes from this question of when does our life begin? Right. And when do you begin to, you know, I mean, like that sounds very um, potentially conservative, but you know what I mean? Like when do, when does, when does everything <laughs> begin for us? Does it, when we are born and therefore everything our parents went through gets erased or do we see ourselves as like the 20th right. generation of a family? 
And I actually kind of thought it was really interesting and, and maybe something I'd like to hear Tammy also talk about is reading about your story and reading about the story of your parents where you, they had come to the U.S. already, but they actually went back to create a, to give birth to you and then they came back to the, to the U.S. But you you were you talk about how they kind of struggled as refugees in Seoul before they came to the U.S. Well, my mom's family, yeah. Your family. Yeah. In particular. Yeah. Uh, it does strike me, and I don't know if this is like reductive, to, but this it does kind of perhaps kind of made it kind of made me reflect about like how you and I overlap, but also are different in some ways. And one would be sort of I think my family is much more connected to Taiwan. They actually had a you know that a similar trajectory. You know, like they were from China, they went to Taiwan. They don't have deep roots there, so they were willing to move to the mm-hmm. U.S. But they kept that door open much more than it seems like your family kind of make fun of jokingly about how your parents actually like really don't like Korea and don't like don't don't like going back to <laughs> well, Korea. They don't like going back that. to Korea very much, yeah. Right. Um and I think every immigrant family has its uh its own specific relationship right. to the to the mother. But I thought that actually was kind of that also kind of explains I think a lot of the differences and disagreements we've had, you know, right. about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um I don't know, I mean Tammy and I would say like a strength of the book is that it actually kind of made me think about what is my version of a lot of these same stories yeah. and yeah. I don't know, I mean, Tammy, if you if yeah. you felt the same way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, how do you feel hearing that, Jay? Well, that's the whole, because... you know, that's the idea, I think, behind everything, which is, like, is there a way that we can, I don't know, it's, like, you want to be as honest and as personal as possible if you can and hope that other people will use that to think about their own positions, you know, and their own stories and, um, I believe in that. I believe very strongly in that sort of version of writing. Um, did you um, did you tell your your parents what you were going to say? Did they read it? I mean, you you there's also a beautiful translation of a small snippet from your mom. Oh, they've blog. definitely read it, and you know they talked to how did they feel? And stuff. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Um, so they knew yeah, what was so... coming. I have no idea how they feel about it. I mean, we don't talk about it. Um, they're happy that the book is out. They send me photos of <laughs> yeah. You know, of when it's like where it's displayed in local, uh, you know, Mm. Puget Sound bookstores. That's so nice. But um, but they haven't said any. They didn't say anything like this part makes me feel uncomfortable or why would you put this in? No, 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 no. They've been through this many times now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but not to this extent, right? I I feel like I've read most of your stuff, and this is pretty out there for their lives. You know? Yeah. They don't. I don't think that they. I don't think they think that way. yeah. You know, there are a few things that my parents didn't want me to include in there, and I took those out, but um, okay. it was very minor stuff, you know. I'm going to text your mom now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> none of it, they're, 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 I think they understand the process of, of, of this, of writing, and I think they, mm-hmm. um, they're fine with it, you know, like, yeah, they're yeah. 70, you know, like, what, what do they have to be embarrassed about? I don't know. Or like, what do they have yeah. to? What do they have to really think about? You know, so um, no, they haven't. They haven't said anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just hearing us talk about that sounds like, you know, if one were to like categorize this, this is a book about like political subjectivity. Like, how do you activate mm-hmm. someone's? I don't know if conscience is the right word, but like, kind of like look at the look at someone's the insides of someone and like what? How do they? to think about like their relationship to the world, but you're not, but you're like less, you're less um, like dead set on the actual solutions, right? On what, yeah. what, what are they actually going to do when they set out? But you're really kind of mining. How do we look at your, how do you look at your own experience and how do others pretty much look at their own experience as a source for inspiration for political participation somehow? Yeah. And I was, well, yeah, I think so. And what is that p- political p- uh, participation What's the best way to try and get as many people involved as possible, you know? Um, and I don't know. I don't know if my prescriptions are correct or not, but I certainly have thought about them a lot, you know? And a lot of them are inspired from seeing how people organize in Asian spaces on the other side of the aisle, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, I remember <laughs> I went to see, uh, you know, Yukong Zhao, who is the guy who is one of the head organizers against affirmative action, you know? Right. And um, <laughs> the man is tireless, you know? Um, he's 
in a way shameless right he doesn't care if people like yell at him or if people say no right he's still going to ask you to join and uh in some ways like yes you know the vast majority of those people are like recent chinese immigrants who are middle class and who uh and who you know really hate affirmative action (laughs) yeah but there is also the coalitional part about it where they like are able to get like sign-ons from like you know the community groups in all these different communities in like you know Indian American, South Asian, Korean American, right? And you just see all of this, all these people who have signed on. And, um, you know, like, it's interesting. It means that Asian Americans are, it doesn't, it, it means that there is political possibility, right? There is coalitional possibility. <laughs> but right but now, you... a lot of it on a big scale is happening on that side, right? Like, what are, think... what are the big, what are the big movements that you see that are around Asian right. America right now? Like, what are the ones that get like, tons of money from political like pouring in what are the ones that have like you know some of the best legal minds in the country working on it right it's it's mostly on that side right but that makes me wonder if any attempt at politics that that is organized primarily around ethnicity is going to be reactionary right Mm -hmm. like it it is i mean that's kind of how i tend to think about these things right and that even if you have I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, we don't want to go too deep into this, but in terms of like the various kind of people who came after you, right? I think there is a weird confluence, a weird sort of Venn diagram in terms of the sort of some would see themselves as like radical left. Some see themselves as liberal, right? But they all kind of like landed on these very similar prescriptions of like, you're not, you're not enough of a cheerleader for Asian identity and you're not enough and you're not, and you're not giving us the stories of white supremacy and Asian victimhood. Right. Right, that they all want, and that that to me kind of is actually kind of instructive in terms of how a lot of sort of ethnic based politics is kind of prone to sliding in that direction right. Right? I, of being of being. But I mean, maybe Tammy disagrees, but that's, well, I don't. That's I kind don't of necessarily how I disagree, but I w- just wanted to like historicize that basically in the sense that I think a lot of the movements, as Jay was describing, that are flourishing right now are on the right. Because of where we are just generally in our country and the way that the right has so successfully organized through ALEC and the different Koch-funded initiatives and stuff. So I I see the Asian affirmative action thing as kind of like a product of that, as something like associated with that under that general umbrella. I don't think it necessarily means that ethnically based organizing has to be reactionary. I mean, I'm thinking about Asian oriented immigrant rights organizing, for example, or even in the workers' rights community. That stuff has never been big and has never seen a lot of money, you know, because of the nature of what it does and is. But a lot of those groups are, in fact, like Asian American groups that have played important roles in those reforms. So I think that exists. But for sure, what I think Jay is describing is accurate right now because of the flows of money. But that's... Or I'd say, like, sorry, just like, I think those groups are oriented towards some greater goal beyond themselves. But but I think... But that's how the affirmative action people feel, too, I think. I mean, they it's for the uplift right. of the community. I think they want to defend themselves, right? But Whereas that's how immigrants feel, too. Yeah, but that's, that's all. Li- yeah, I don't think that... I, I'm not sure that's a distinction, Andy. I think Tammy yeah. is right that the difference is the money that comes in and the manpower that comes in from outside, right? That allows some of these places to get much bigger. But it brings up the question, you know? Like, why don't if why don't the progressives, you know, there's all sorts of progressive money flowing around in the world. You know, it goes into all sorts of different things, education, housing, whatever. Like the idea that like that there isn't like, quote unquote, dark money on on the left is crazy. Of course, there is. Yeah, it is. And so, like, why does none of that go to Asian American organizations? Well, you know, that also asks the question, well, why are these people so reactionary? Right. Like, same question. It's like they just don't give a shit about us. You know, like that's like how, like how. I mean, it does. It does. Well, I I, not I just at feel that like same for, extent though, right? Like no, right, definitely. Right. But I think, yeah, because those those like the affirmative action stuff, that kind of stuff is like essentially like impact litigation that is funded at like a high level by right. federalist society right. type groups. You know, and right. we're talking about something different, which is like on the left, generally Asian groups are small and local and are or and you know do social services or do some sort yeah. of like community campaigns, and those are funded by like Soros and Ford Foundation and stuff like that. But it's never going to be big. So you know, right. but I 
I think that leads into something I know Andy and I are both really interested in, which is the MR Asians <laughs> chapter, because I think one of your strengths as a journalist over the years has been to peel up the ugly parts of Asian America. And right. I think that's what makes people feel uncomfortable, obviously. Um, so whether it's the fraternities or the Oikios, it was Oikios, right? Oikos, Oikos yeah. shooting um, in Oakland or, you know, the MR Asians. So could we could we talk a little bit about that Doug chapter, which, you know, um, it's very painful to read. Painful how? Um, because there's a there's a pivot moment kind of at the beginning of the chapter where you talk about how when you observe Doug's trajectory, you guys you see yourself, but then at the point where you choose a politics, you guys chose differently, right? Yeah, I thought so, that was super honest and interesting. It is, and yeah. and to me that's painful in the sense that there you were actually counseling like don't go in this direction. Like right. this stuff you feel can be funneled in another direction. So right, that's yeah. what I mean by that. Yeah, um, yeah. But do you want to talk about like why you felt that it was important to include that chapter in this book? Well, yeah. And sort of because, like w- what the point is? Well, because, you know, it, the book is a narrative in the sense that like there is um, the chapter before it sort of ends and ba- uh, it's a chapter about protest, Right. And it's a chapter about like the time I spent as a protest reporter, basically what I saw, (laughs) right? Like, what did I see in Minneapolis? You know, what did I see in Ferguson? What did I see in, in, uh, Baltimore, you know, Mm -hmm. or Standing Rock or what did I see in, in, in Korea, you know, during the Pakenhe, um, impeachment protests. Right. And, uh, what, what, like, do we believe that, you know, there is this great mobilization of solidarity groups that go out and do these things, right? And then just like, well, I don't know. I think there are, but I don't really see them, right? At least not in the same extent, right, where you see other groups. And um, that doesn't mean that they don't exist or the people who do it whose work is important shouldn't be credited with it but man i went to a lot of fucking protests you know yeah in a lot of cities i would say i probably went to um uh i probably went to more than than most people right um and that was my observation that right like there is like this sort of sense of political alienation and there is a sense of like we can't participate in politics in a full-throated way without doing 500 caveats, right? Or without having it be super nostalgic in the way that like the Third World Liberation Front is or people who hold up signs that say, um, yellow, yellow peril supports black power, right? I like, you know, I will say that the one, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna respond to, to, uh, to reviews, but like there's a review that said that like I was sneering at those kids and that really actually upset me because like, you know, like I don't, I don't sneer at kids at a protest. You know, like, that's not who I am. Like, I, I'm so happy that they're there. And I'm happy that they found this expression. And I think it's courageous for them to be there. Um, and I, I, I sympathize with them in a way that, like, is much deeper than I would sympathize with any of these Asians in the media. You know, like, these kids showed up, you know. <laughs> and they're trying to work out they're their trying to work relationship. It out. Right. And they, totally. they're trying to work out the stuff that they've learned. They're trying to situate themselves in this moment and i bet they feel like there's a large part of them feels nervous as hell you know but they feel they feel yeah, yeah there is like a there's a fear there they're feeling minor feelings right according right, to Kathy, right, Kathy's right, book. Right, it's exactly right, right. that but. right so they're there and they're like fuck you know like yep <laughs> who am i why am i here i don't deserve <laughs> right, to right, be here right uh, exactly all those things and like to say that i am sneering at that is cra- i think it is just so such a such like a cruel way to read it you know and so i wanted to but you know i see the i saw those kids right and i saw other Mm -hmm. kids i did see asian kids at these protests especially last summer a lot much more compared to much much more compared to the first you know like to either 2014 or i'm sorry uh, to 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 the first wave around eric garner and um and mike brown or the uh or the second wave which was around um Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, mm-hmm. right? Philando Castile, uh, yeah. In those areas, I, I saw almost none. And so, the, mm-hmm. yes, there is a mobilization. But um, it is that idea of, like, well, what are we politically? Like, what are we doing politically? Like, how, how do we get over what Kathy called minor feelings, right? How do we form this right. type of politics? And that's, that's a provocation that I wanted to make, right? And so the idea was, like, 
if we are stuck in this way, if we can't access politics, then what happens to us, right? And my main idea, or the main thing I was interested in is, well, how do Asian men access politics, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do Asian men who, like, sort of were told, you don't have, you know, in, in some ways, which are so, well, you're a man, you know, uh, you, you don't have these problems. Asian men who generally, I don't know, like, Tammy, you know, like, if you look at, like, Asian activists, this is true of every group, by the way. You know? I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, I don't know, like, you know, like, what are the like kind of cheesy things that, or, you know, some of the like kind of like super woke type of things that people say on Twitter is like, you know, like uh, black women are the backbone of activism. And like, you know, like there's like a, there's yeah. like some impulse to be like, whoa, whatever. You're like, no, actually, that's completely 100% true. <laughs> you know, like it is totally <laughs> true. You know, um, there is a lot of women leadership. Yeah. Yet. And like, <laughs> it's true. Women, women are more involved in these types of activism. Right. And that is not because like they've shut men out. Right. <laughs> like, I don't believe that. You know, I don't believe, I don't believe that it's because like they're, they have some sort of like, you know, like self hate fueled fatwa against Asian men to shut them out of all sorts of political space. Like, I think that's ridiculous, you know, but it is true that Asian men, I think, do feel particularly politically alienated in the United States. Right. And what form of politics do they find? Right. Well, it's most of them are not political at all. Like they do the thing that we talked right. about at the beginning. They join a hedge fund or they try and be as successful as they can be. Um, but those who do care about politics, like sometimes they can take on these types of forms that are that are like, you know, and I think that I wrote the chapter because like I was trying to, you know, I, I talked to these guys a lot, a lot, a lot, you know, um, Doug is my friend, you know, and I would never con like I don't condemn my friends and I, I'm a writer at my job is not to condemn people, you know, like he's my friend and um, I still talk to Doug, you know, and so like it's not that is not. Like, I was trying to understand how Doug, who grew up kind of like I grew up, right? He's Korean. Yeah. He, like, he grew up in the Westchester County. He went to mm -hmm. Duke. Um, right. <laughs> he, he played poker when he was in his 20s, you know? He did very, yeah. very well. He made a lot of money. Um, and he wanted to go into media in the end, right? Like, right. Um, how, how is it that, why did Doug fall into this? You know, why did he? Exactly, yeah. Why did he start? Uh, going to these forums and I found that that story to be totally relatable to, to like my own life, you know, like I could see all the moments where I would have done the exact same thing if it had been available to me, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't know if I would have done that exact thing, but I would have done something <laughs> no. very, very extreme. Right. And so in yeah. the chapter, I talk a lot about how <clears throat> for me, like the iteration of it was basically becoming a, an ascetic for a while. Like I, did not eat anything really. I didn't, all I did was meditate and I planted trees and, you know, tried to like, right. you know, like kind of like. You went the Gary Snyder route. Right. And like, that's like a form <laughs> of like self, like such extreme self-denial. Right. And like, that is, that was a result of me being like pretty mentally ill at the time and trying to figure out like how I could keep all of this under wraps, you know, but, um, I don't know, but Keep I also felt totally isolated during that period of time. I didn't know anybody except my friend Victor, you know, who was like a Zen yeah. Buddhist monk now. And the, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, that's what we did. You know, like Victor and I would talk about uh, enlightenment and we would meditate. We'd, you know, talk about, you know, the Upanishads or Bhagavad Gita or whatever. I think like, you know, being friends with you, it has actually taught me to be more compassionate towards these people which i think originally i was sort of like i think every men Asian complaining man. you know and it's like men are fine they're rich they're you know what i mean they're doing fine right. and here they are berating themselves and we have to take responsibility for this why and i think um i guess i've gotten to a point where i know that toxic masculinity is like it's a problem in every community and it actually has deep political ramifications in our society so it has to be dealt with, you know. Um, but I guess, like, what do you then, I know that this isn't a book of prescriptions, but basically you are linking the sort of upwardly mobile Asian-American dismissal of some of these concerns to these people's radicalization. I'm not doing it. So what is the fix? I mean, Okay, but I want to be clear here. I am not saying that Asian-American women, like, you know, married a bunch of white dudes and that meant... No, not that right, part. Right, right, Obviously, right. that's ridiculous. But, no, but I, I just mean, like, you are saying that 
you know, they upwardly, I mean, just to give a couple of cruder examples, like the Asian, upwardly mobile Asian American dismissal of concerns over affirmative action or of the violence on the streets that we've seen over the past couple of years has, you know, contributed to the radicalization of these people. Right. Because they don't feel like they can say anything or do anything, you know? Right. And, um, and they can. That's the thing, right? They can, right? Exactly. But they feel like they can't, right? And we have to examine why they feel like they can't. But I also think like there's part of it where I just think like, um, like it's very hard. I think about like the, I don't know, when I was writing this chapter, I thought a lot about like, oddly enough, like the Combahee River Collective and the idea behind it, right? We need to have an identity politics so that black women, black queer women, you know, in particular, can have a way to access politics, right? Because uh, they feel like they are shut out of the, um, they felt like they're shut out of black black spaces, right? Like black power spaces. They feel like they're shut out of white women feminism, right? And there's a way that they need to access politics. That's why they created that, right? It is like a, it is like that that impulse is very real in people, you know. And um, it takes on all sorts of fucked up forms, yeah. you know? And yeah. so I think the reason why I wrote the chapter is to just show, look, like, there is a lot of Asian dudes who feel very locked out of all politics, you know? Andy, what were you going to say? Like, do you, like, I, I feel like most Asian dudes, like, understand this kind of instinctive. Yeah, no, was, when Tammy said, like, I forgot what Tammy said about, like, meeting these people. I was like, if you know any Asian guy, Tammy, right. they have, like, 5% of this politics. It's really... <laughs> I, I mean, I've you. had a lot of fights over this because I'm kind of like, yeah, so fuck fr- this. It's fuck so you guys, prevalent. you know? Yeah, no. But, but let me, okay, I think the other thing I want to say is, um, <laughs> not in, in my defense, no. Um, yeah, it is. In defense of the 5 to 8% of it. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, like, you know, the conversations among different people in college, you can imagine all sorts of toxic stuff. Yeah. You know, it's out there, but, you know, there's, you know, I think we all saw the Slate article about this a few weeks ago and oh, yeah. i think there is a tendency to conflate a lot of things which is like so for instance like the, the common thing that comes up in these conversations is like discussions about dating right and dating habits um mm-hmm. and i'm not saying we should actually fixate on this but i do think there is a way to talk about it that is that can't that shouldn't necessarily be dismissed as toxic mr asian discourse and the, like the example i have off my head top of my head is like npr did an article or did a whole feature about oh, yeah, this yeah, by yeah, an Asian, yeah, Asian yeah. female host, Joe Wei Sha, right? Yeah, about right, yeah. Asian women. And you wouldn't accuse that of being toxic, right? It's like an Asian woman doing it for NPR, very mm-hmm. liberally acceptable and all that. But I do think, <laughs> but yeah, and, and, and it's good because it's actually the exception to the rule. Like, in general, you're right. Generally, when this stuff comes up, it is in a very toxic way. But I think it also leads to the end product of like shutting down these conversations in a way that does make it, I think, a lot that might reinforce this idea that we're not allowed to talk about this. Right, right. Uh, You're talking and, about and so when on. they tried to, when Yoe like sent out like emails and sort of put posts in Reddit asking if any of these dudes would talk to her and everyone freaked out, right? Right. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And and the story is if you I've only read the transcript, but I've it's, it's fine. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, it's mostly about very... mouse brains. No, I'm serious. <laughs> it's brains. mostly like the brains of mice because it's, it's part of like a show about brain science, you know, um, but like, I, is it? Yeah. Invisibilia. Like, but um, right. OK. Yeah. But yeah. That that was a great example, Andy. Right. Like she was doing her job as a reporter and a bunch of people freaked out and said, like, you're platforming them, blah, 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 blah. Right. Like you're doing X, Y and Z. You're harming you're harming people. And I don't know. I, my thought at the time was just like, why don't you let Yoe tell her story the way that she wants to tell it? Why don't you allow her to do the reporting that she needs to do? What is so dangerous here? You know, where like you where we can't think and talk about this stuff. And here's the thing, Andy, I don't think it's just five. I don't think it's five percent of Asian <laughs> men or like a five percent of every Asian guy has these thoughts. I think a lot of Asian women have these thoughts, too, you know, because yeah. like like they are fundamental to the experience and because they've been shut out so long, right? Because we can't talk about it in any sort of constructive way, right? It metastasizes into something else and it it metastasizes into a type of radicalism um, that is like born out of a complete denial of ability to talk about things, frankly. And I don't know, I think it's bad, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I like being honest, like, you know, like I know a lot of Asian dudes, you know, a lot of Asian dudes, I assume, right? Like, like, you know, like, 
how many both of us yeah yeah how many of that how many of them do you think are somewhere close to one of these i don't know like these conversations happen all the time like i can't imagine yeah. right college at the college age not talking about like who do you date and who do you right. what kind of groups do you like and not like um but and yeah then I'm a, yeah i mean yeah. i think it's i was just sorry to interrupt you i was just gonna say i think it's like it is all men too right because it's essentially about like misogyny and but it has these certain racial overtones and i think it yeah of course we i think it's worth talking about like what are the root causes of this radicalization but i also think it's interesting that the once that movement started really getting going right once it was off of the forums and into other forms mostly like harassing media people on twitter including me celesting no but i get more of it now than anyone <laughs> like they put my dead grandparents on trial for being japanese yeah. collaborators you know it's just it like wild. you guys are crazy it's weird yeah. yeah i mean when i was reading the chapter there was a line that uh sounded just like uh, i had to do a double take because it sounded like a tweet i just saw this weekend you know about like white like self-hating white betraying right blah 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 uh, yeah, I think like the interesting thing is, you know, most coverage or most attempts to write about this would try to exoticize them and talk about how are these people different than us. Oh, yeah, like and the kind slate of asking, piece, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you're asking the yeah. opposite question, right. which is like, how are they right. not that different from us? Um, which I think is, you know, useful. We have to confront the MR Asian tanky inside all of us. I don't, uh, right, yeah, exactly. that's kind of like, <laughs> you know, I don't have any problem with that slate piece, right? But I really didn't think that it was particularly useful, right? Because... It was just like, well, these people are just losers and incels, you know? And, like, they're just mad. And I'm just like, I don't, like, what's, we already did, we already went through this six times, you know? It's like when people attack barstool sports, you know? They're like, yeah, I don't like barstool sports really either. But, like, we've done, right. we've done the same article six times, you know? I wrote one too, you know? It's just, <laughs> I'm not familiar with oh Barstool Sports. Um, anyway. We're just like, can we advance this conversation? Because this thing is here to stay, you know? And so like... Do you, so I've actually never been in these forums. Is it like this huge thing uh, that continues to grow? Didn't you say it got like broken up a few times by the moderators? Uh, well, they all get in internal fights and then they splinter off and start new groups. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. You know? Um, right. It's like left-wing chat groups. Right. Yeah, and then some of them get some of them get banned. You know. Right. So I think one of the big tanky subwriters got banned, and then you know, but then the people who are in that refuse to go to the other one, and um, yeah, it's uh, they're all kind of the same though if you look at them. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they all post the I, same articles. They're mad about the same stuff. They just you know they have different organizing points, I guess. Let me just ask you one more question, right. Jay, which is just a fun one to end because I think we're all really excited and happy for you. But um, are there particular are things you? that we've done? Yes. I had lunch with, I, uh, I had lunch with um, today with, I, you know, right before this, I had lunch with like Albert Samaha, who wrote that book Concepcion, which uh, is about his family and Filipino mm -hmm. family and how they came to the United States. And, um, uh, we were making these jokes about how they, because our books released on the same day and, you know, it's like the two Asian dudes on the same day. You're like, I'm happy for you. Are you? <laughs> no, but it was weird. It's, of course, I'm happy. I, I, I've never met Albert before in person, but I know his work and I've interacted with someone online and I've, I've always really admired him, you know? I don't know. It's, it is nice to, I, like, we are all happy for each other. I don't know, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I'm happy for, like, I'm happy when other Asian people do well like you know like I'm not very competitive in that sort of way like I just I don't know I find it that's oh yeah no so it's so weird it just seems like anyway go ahead yeah okay but let me ask my question yeah ask your question <laughs> which is just a fun one to end this which is are there particular things that you've learned or thought about through the podcasting process and also in our discord chat room that helped you with the book oh good question yes I think so I mean the podcast has helped very much sharpen my political idea, ideas, ideas, you know? Um, although I will say that I wrote most of the book before the podcast existed. Well, yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> but later in edits. Right. So there's there's right. a lot of COVID stuff in there, though. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, I, yeah. but I think that, like, there's two ways to think about the book that you wrote, not to be, like, too Paris, Paris Review, like, the art of writing, 
but like you know, <laughs> I, I think there are two ways to yeah. think about it. The first is like as an object, right? And then the second is you try and think about it, like, well, what was I saying when I was writing that, you know? And do I agree with it still? And there are definitely parts of this book that I wrote right. that I don't really agree with anymore, you know? Mm. Um, and a lot of the change in my thinking about that sort of stuff has come from talking to so many people online who are part of our podcast community, you know, because I think that we have, uh, and there are things that I say that like, I, you know, from time to time that I think seem insensitive and I, uh, and I don't realize it at the time because I'm like, uh, you know, like I'm growing just like everybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. Also like, you know, like there's part of me that's like very hard headed about certain things and (laughs) it takes a while, Yeah, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) So, yeah, but then at the same time, you can't, I don't think you can go back and apologize for the things that are in the book, you know, like you can't say, oh, I didn't mean that, you know, because at some point I did, right? Right. And so, like, um, oh, here comes Frankie. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, uh, I do think that, that the conversations have changed my thinking a lot, and I think that if I ever read another book, it would you know, be informed by that quote of yeah. Hey, Frankie. <laughs> Jay's daughter has come down to join. Say the hi podcast. to the podcast yeah, listeners. Frankie was named. Hey, Frankie. Frankie was, uh, Frankie was mentioned in the New Yorker yesterday. <laughs> hey, Frankie. <laughs> Frankie, what are you looking at? Are you looking at them? Can you hear them? Hey, Frankie. Can you wave? <laughs> oh, she's, she's. She doesn't want to be in the screen. Way. Yeah. No, she's, she's right. Um. Well, congratulations, Jay. We're so happy for you. And thanks to all the listeners for supporting Jay's work and the podcast. Um, Jay also has a first book, which is a very fun and cheeky novel. So you can check that out. Um, but yeah, thanks, Jay. Thanks, Andy. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you congratulations, Jay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Um, Time to say goodbye.